Hello, and welcome to Rewind, a podcast by Resolve. Resolve is a youth-led social enterprise that spotlights the climate crisis and builds climate action communities in South Asia. I am your host, Ronak Mainali, and this podcast, Rewind, is a documentation of my journey learning about the climate crisis through quick and casual conversations with experts, activists, entrepreneurs, and everyone else making a difference in this space. Welcome everyone to the fifth episode of the Rewind podcast. Today we will be exploring water scarcity and water wars in the context of South Asia, mainly looking at India and Pakistan. I have studied this topic briefly before, but thankfully, we have a special guest today who knows and has researched this topic very well. Our guest today is Dr. Dhanasri Jairam. Dr. Jairam is an assistant professor at the Department of Geopolitics and International Relations, as well as a co-coordinator at the Center for Climate Studies at Manipal Academy of Higher Education in Karnataka, India. She is also a research fellow at Earth System Governance and a member of the Climate Security Expert Network. She holds a PhD in Geopolitics and International Relations from Manipal. She has also spent time in academic capacity in Switzerland and the Netherlands. On top of all this, she is the author of Breaking Out of the Greenhouse, Indian Leadership in Times of Environmental Change, as well as Climate Diplomacy and Emerging Economies, India as a Case Study. Dr. Jairam, welcome to the episode. Thank you so much, Ranak. Thank you for having me on this episode. So I want to start by asking you something about your research. Usually when we look at geopolitics and international relations, we talk about foreign policy involving maybe economy, maybe politics. We never look at it in terms of environment. Why were you interested in, in the environment aspect of geopolitics? Uh, so you're right when you say that uh, whether you take geopolitics or international relations, you would find that environmental issues started to feature in these discourses and narratives much later. So uh, especially in the post-Cold War period when, when uh, you know, when the so-called bipolar order uh, and the kind of distribution of power that existed during the Cold War, all these issues were kind of sidelined to give way for newer issues, newer security challenges, which also shape how uh, the international system works. So in that way, this is a fairly new topic for many researchers, including me. So I decided to take up this topic because environment, as as you yourself mentioned, has a huge impact on foreign policy, on economics, on politics, uh, on various other sectors, and especially security as well. So this is something that, again, uh, hasn't really come up uh, a, a lot in, in recent studies, but then you would find that environmental security is also Uh, a major part of environmental security research is also a major part of international relations today. So so I started looking at South Asia in particular and how environmental security issues are intermingling or interacting with other security concerns in the region, especially since this region has a lot of transboundary environmental problems. Uh, uh, And then, of course, I also started looking at climate diplomacy, which is also very important in today's world as the world tries to tackle the worsening climate crisis uh, and climate change being at the center of foreign policy agenda of most of the countries. So in all these aspects, uh, what I found is that environment is something that you cannot negate or cannot leave aside. 
uh, without taking environmental issues into consideration, uh, you will never be able to come up with a policy that is foolproof, uh, that is something that can have an impact on the societies itself. Uh, and more so, like I mentioned, uh, a, a, a discipline which kind of neglected environmental issues for a long period of time has begun to now look into it more deeply in order to understand uh, and frame policies that can actually help the people that live in the world. I think you've put it very well, because I think a lot of people, when talking about politics, see environment as a niche in itself, and they don't really involve environment within greater policymaking, when in fact it has a huge impact on policy. Also to this, you did your PhD thesis on a similar topic. You mentioned in your PhD thesis that you want the military to be stakeholders in environmental security and governance. But usually when people speak of the military, they see it as like a destructive force. How can you positively involve the military in the realm of climate without it being destructive? Yeah, that, that's the most critical question here. So are the militaries actually part of the global environmental governance or not? And this is something that I also tried answering in one of the recent articles that I published, which looks at whether the military is, uh, uh, is an actor in global climate governance. And if they are, in what ways do they actually contribute to not just climate governance, but also broader environmental governance? And, the, and what I arrived at in my uh, research conclusions is that the militaries have been involved in environmental issues, environmental affairs for a really long period of time. Most often they are seen as destructive forces, like you mentioned, because of the kind of uh, destruction they cause in the form of wars uh, or in the form of how they you know, go on protecting borders. In all these different uh, operations and at the strategic level, in the way they operate, there is a lot of inherent environmental destruction that is obvious and that is something that we have to take note of. But at the same time, they need to be a stakeholder if we have to come up with a, uh, a more uh, comprehensive solution, right? So if you look at the militaries, they are one of the largest consumers of energy. Uh, they are one of the largest emitters of greenhouse gas emissions. In fact, we still don't know the extent of greenhouse gas emissions of the militaries across the world because they are exempt from actually reporting their emissions internationally. So, for instance, if you look at the Pentagon, uh, the, the, the U.S. armed forces, uh, they are act, their emissions are much more than many countries itself, for that matter. So is it not important to bring them also onto the board and make them also act on uh, issues like climate change? Because without their active participation and without their contribution to climate mitigation adaptation, it is going to be very difficult for the world to arrive at solutions because of their large stakes in many issues. At the same time, uh, we also have to remember that they have been involved in activities like humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. Uh, you look at South Asian region itself, if there is a major disaster, the military always steps in, right? So even like in a country like India, where you have a national disaster response force, uh, when there is a major disaster, the military has to step in, there is no other go. Sometimes they are the first responders. Uh, as a case in point, you can take the 2013 Uttarakhand floods, 
uh, where the military played a huge role in rescue and relief missions and even in the reconstruction efforts. So in that way, the military has a role to play, but we also have to be cautious and careful about how to really put them into action when it comes to climate mitigation and adaptation. Uh, environmental governance uh, broadly, as I mentioned, because if it is at the cost of human rights and justice, then it has to, uh, uh, I mean, it has to be rethought of, it has to be, uh, it has to be reconstructed in order to, in order to make sure that, uh, that all these different principles are not compromised upon at any cost, right? So in many contexts, the militaries have had a very uh, strenuous relationship with the civilian agencies. But in many cases, that is not the case. Like in India also, you would find that since uh, independence, the civil-military relations are pretty clear as to where the civilian establishment is or where the military is. So, but in cases where uh, the, the line is kind of thin or where the military is known for dictatorships or coups uh, or coup d'etats and all those kind of uh, different kinds of actions, then you need to be very careful about how to really involve them in typically civilian issues like environmental governance. So in that way, we have to be uh, cautious about issues like justice, issues like uh, local participation, which has to also go hand in hand, and the level of involvement of the military, which should not be at the, at the cost of, as I mentioned, disempowerment of civilian agencies itself. So we need to find that middle ground uh, and make sure that these stakeholders, uh, uh, as, as the military itself, can play uh, a positive, constructive role. I think what you said really applies to polarized nations where something like military spending is a big issue between two competing parties. So I just want to use America for an example. Like if Democrats, say, suppose, offer lower military budget while Republicans obviously go for higher military budgets, I think a party like the Democrat Party can justify higher military budgets and saying how, well, this is the new role of the military. They're also going to be stakeholders in environmental discussions and environmental programs. I think that way they can also sort of co-op those people who want higher military spending on their side. So I feel like that's something, there's something there related to what you've mentioned as well. I want to get into the topic that we're talking about today, which is water wars uh, in the subcontinent. I just want to ask you, what is the importance of the Indus River systems for the subcontinent? Uh, yeah, so the Indus water systems, uh, I mean, it has huge importance for the region, no doubt, especially because uh, you have two countries, India and Pakistan. Of course, the basin itself is shared by China and Afghanistan also. But I think the biggest stakeholders in the Indus Waters Basin is uh, are India and Pakistan, for sure. Uh, and there are uh, there are over 200 million people who are dependent on the waters of the Indus Basin itself. So there is a huge agricultural belt as well uh, in both these countries that depend on these waters. Uh, now, Indus Basin, once again, the rivers of the basin have huge hydropower potential as well, although it is not really... Uh, uh, it's not really exploited to the extent that it should be uh, because of, again, geopolitical reasons. So in that sense, Indus Waters system has huge, uh, like I mentioned, economic relevance as well as uh, uh, geopolitical relevance because these are the waters that essentially were divided between India and Pakistan uh, in 1960. Of course, uh, there are predecessors to that just after independence as well. There were... Uh, some efforts to at least divide 
the waters, but it did not really work out well. But eventually that did happen. So it has territorial connotations. It has political connotations. Of course, uh, I think the biggest factor here is the uh, as that is is that Indus waters, the Indus Basin itself contributes to the economies of large parts of India as well as the, almost the whole of Pakistan itself. So we know about the history between India and Pakistan. How did the Indus Waters Treaty sort of pacify these complications between the two countries? Uh, so, so when the Indus Waters Treaty was uh, signed way back in 1960, of course, it happened after years of negotiations. And it was not an easy task to arrive at this treaty because neither of the countries wanted to give up on their territorial rights to the waters in particular. Uh, and like I mentioned, because the partition itself was carried out in a rather haphazard manner uh, with uh, not much of study on how exactly the basin will be divided and how the rivers uh, will be divided. With all these things not really going into how the partition was carried out, that was the land itself being partitioned, uh, partitioning of waters was even more difficult. Uh, and there were already signs of uh, discord between the two parties as far as the water uh, relations are concerned. Uh, and the World Bank's intervention sort of helped arbitrate this treaty between the two countries. And it was initially uh, considered a confidence building measure. Uh, and I would say it has been largely successful in that respect. Uh, I'm not sure how much confidence it has built between the two countries because uh, uh, because that confidence is actually contingent on a lot of other factors as well. However, at least when it came to the treaty, it was never abandoned. It was never meddled with, with either of the uh, by either of the countries uh, during wars or conflicts uh, or even limited wars uh, in these decades. So in that way, the Indus Waters Treaty has been successful in preventing a war. But if you ask me, has it built confidence or has it actually led to more cooperation on either water relations or other sectors, I'm not sure about that. So you just mentioned there that the treaty has actually survived a couple of wars and also uh, the development the disparity between the two nations as well, because I think India has developed far more than Pakistan has. And yet the treaty has not been renegotiated like there was no need to. What is the issue of climate change that leads to many to say that maybe now is the time to renegotiate? Uh, so for me, I don't think renegotiation is a requirement at this stage because the treaty itself provides scope for cooperation. So even if, okay, of course, in 1960, climate change was not a factor. So it was not taken into consideration even while apportioning the waters and you know, where the rivers were divided between India and Pakistan with the western rivers of Indus, Jhelum and Chenab to Pakistan and the eastern ones, Ravi, Bias and Satluj to India, right? So uh, climate change was not a factor when this treaty was signed, obviously. However, uh, the treaty itself provides scope for a cooperation on various fronts, whether it is joint basin management or other factors that may affect the basin's uh, environmental integrity itself uh, or its ecological integrity. So in that sense, it is not about renegotiating the treaty uh, or revising the treaty, uh, maybe, uh, uh, or revising the treaty. It's maybe the requirement to actually 
the, the requirement here is to actually relook at how the countries can use the treaty to further enhance cooperation between the two countries. So, of course, uh, you know, uh, whether you look at the effect of climate change on the glaciers, the Indus uh, Basin is one of the most stressed basins, river basins in the world, and there is no doubt about that. And there is enough scientific literature that points to that factor. Secondly, because of the dependence of the Indus Basin on glaciers, this, this is another factor that is going to add to the existing woes of the people who depend on these rivers. And in addition to that, beyond climate change, there is also environmental degradation. There's also pollution. There is also groundwater, which is not even part of the treaty. So, you know, groundwater exploitation, which is happening on both sides of the border, particularly in the Indian Punjab and the Pakistani Punjab, these are issues that are yet to be addressed by the treaty. So in that way, some revisions have to be made to at least put these aspects into the treaty. Um, but in the sense that is there a need for a political renegotiation, say, for instance, uh, one country like, uh, I mean, of course, when the when the treaty was signed, uh, uh, Pakistan uh, got the major part of it, the major proportion of it, more than 80% of the waters and India got only 20%, right? So in that sense, is there a need for renegotiating the treaty to make sure that India has a fair share as well? Now, this is a question that is coming up a lot, especially in the Indian domestic setup, uh, because, uh, because a lot of Indian states are also dependent on these waters. And increasingly with the population increasing in the region, the agricultural and industrial use of water increasing in all these states. With all these factors, obviously, the, the requirement, the water requirements, the water demand has also risen. It's the same story on the other side of uh, border in Pakistan as well, where uh, water demand has increased. But there are increasing signs of drought every year and the water levels are going down gradually. So there is obviously a need for uh, cooperation between the two countries to jointly manage the basin and ensure that this existential crisis is dealt with. Uh, but it is not a problem of the treaty itself. It is actually a political problem which is not allowing the two countries to come together and probably use the treaty to cooperate on various issues. So with the rise in population and the loss of water through drought and other things, would you say that this becomes a security challenge, considering how India and Pakistan have had their hostilities throughout history? Yeah, so that's that's what I, I think I started by talking about why I started looking at environmental security, right? So why does environment feature as a security concern in the first place? And, and that is primarily because environmental change is increasingly changing security dynamics in various parts of the world. So uh, the South Asian region, the subcontinental uh, politics is definitely also, or security, regional security, so-called regional security is also being influenced by uh, climate and environmental change. Uh, so, so in that sense, uh, uh, in that sense, yes, securities, uh, 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 security is security concerns are an important part of these narratives. And the reason why I'm saying that is also because uh, these are intertwined with uh, various factors. So, you have uh, river water sharing is a territorial issue as well. And then territorial issue, especially with respect to Jammu and Kashmir, the Kashmir dispute is something that was also intertwined with the river water sharing issue. So, uh, so to say that you know these are not uh, security concerns would be a misnomer, right? 
so that is what uh, i would say that this is a security concern as well because as climate change exacerbates uh, the problem as it uh, exacerbates the water insecurity uh, even if you know it doesn't really lead to a full fledged conflict between the two countries uh, they may end up cooperating at least to prevent a war but uh, in a sense it is going to lead to further problems uh, and further uh, level of insecurity between the two countries for sure and we have seen in the past that when uh, the cross border terrorist attacks happened in uri and pulwama india has time again and time and again said that uh, blood and uh, blood and uh, water should not flow together this was the statement made by prime minister Uh, narendra modi after the uri attacks that happened in 2016 uh, so in a sense there is that parallels drawn between blood and water right uh, similarly on the pakistani side as well there have been indications that if india for instance stops the flow of water uh, to its side it may use uh, nuclear weapons uh, however you know this looks highly unlikely but still this is a kind of rhetoric that exists uh on both sides of the border so this kind of rhetorical statements that you find uh, on both sides of the border does uh, do uh, raise that concerns of uh, uh conflict at some point in time in the future and climate change may add to these existing woes itself uh considering the level of uh level of confidence that exists between the two countries now like i said it's a it's like a lack of trust itself which feeds into the conflictual situation so if the two countries shared good relations then obviously there would have been a much better situation and the two countries would have cooperated nevertheless so yes this is going to be a problem in the future and this is where security concerns are going to come up particularly in relation to uh, river water sharing relations so because the population in the subcontinent is rising exponentially and water scarcity is also going up Do you see similar security challenges between India and other South Asian nations as well? Uh so so as far as we know about the existing scientific studies they all talk about climate variability which is going to affect the water levels in major rivers across the region so this is going to be a problem in all the Himalayan rivers uh including the Indus basin Ganges basin Brahmaputra basin and all these rivers by the way these are all transboundary rivers they are not just in one nation state um uh, and uh, to be fair of course we also have to consider the fact that there is actually not much bilateral cooperation happening between the countries except that there are treaties yes there are treaties between india and pakistan there is a treaty uh, there are treaties between india and nepal india and bangladesh uh, and india and bhutan so except maybe with bhutan where uh, like between india and bhutan where uh, you have at least the uh, you know um, um, hydel power or hydel energy trade is happening and as well as uh, such kind of uh, partnerships have also been signed with nepal although this has not really gone anywhere uh, uh, considering the other tensions with the, between india and nepal itself right so in the sense that this is going to be a problem in the future if cooperation is not chosen as a route right so water levels going down is something that we have to be uh, cautious about but as as far as i have read from scientific literature it is not going to be uh, across the basin so like if you take ganges and the impacts of uh, climate change in the ganges basin 
what I see is that the increasingly the scientific literature is pointing towards variability in the flow of water um, in, in the sub-basin, not, not across the basin, right? So the bulk water availability may not be really uh, uh, affected. But then there is going to be, say, a certain decrease in the amount of water in some parts of the basin, while in others it may be normal. So this is something that we have to be more cautious about. At the same time, you also are seeing increasing uh, number of floods, for instance. So how do you really manage water is something that we have to be, uh, we have to really look at, you know. So uh it, the, the the issue is it's uh, these can these are already security concerns i think these are security concerns because they they have uncertainties embedded in them they also have huge human security implications because these rivers basins are adding to um i mean even though they are the lifelines they are also actually causing a lot of damage through floods they are also causing damage when there is not enough water. So in that sense, these are already human security uh, challenges. And at the same time, these can also cause uh, tensions between countries if uh, a solution is not sought where, the, where countries can cooperate on, on some of these challenges. Now, again, let me reiterate the fact that, again, all the treaties that I just discussed or I just talked about between various countries, they all have they all talk about cooperation uh, beyond just apportioning the rivers or just share or just, uh, uh, you know, just uh, uh, dividing the rivers. It is not just about that. It is not just about dividing the share among the countries. It is also about cooperation beyond that. And all these treaties talk about that. So I think we need to focus on how to really use these existing mechanisms to build more confidence and further cooperation uh, in order to make sure that these do not uh, uh, like you know metamorphose into insecurity between the two countries which may also lead to further tensions and all of that but because there is already like i mentioned uh, transboundary at the transboundary level there are already tensions that way like the people in bangladesh have already pointed out towards the fact that uh, India has been uh, releasing more water from the Faraka barrage uh, or has been withholding water when there is not enough water or when there is a deficient monsoon or something like that. So these kind of allegations are already being made. Uh, it's just that it has not uh, exacerbated into a much bigger problem. And we have to keep that in mind and we have to also look at the people who are most affected by these problems. So I want to end on a bit of an optimistic note. You've already sort of hinted at the answers to this, but let's imagine we're in the year 2051 and the challenges of water scarcity have sort of been solved. What are the three things that happen between now and 2051 to make it happen? You've already mentioned cooperation, but what else could we possibly do? Yeah, so I'm, I'm not a person who actually likes this water wars rationale much i hear a lot of uh, 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 i hear a lot of uh, discourses that talk about water wars between countries but there has been very little uh, evidence of countries going to war because of water because they end up cooperating uh, as that is the only way to actually uh, get access to water by fighting you're going to end up 
not having access to any water, right? So compete competition in terms of water is going to just make it much worse for all the parties concerned. Uh, but in in that sense, yes, international cooperation is definitely one among several uh, uh, one among several tools that has to be used to uh, save water. But again, you know, uh, that comes in if uh, there are good policy measures that can be adopted uh, at the national level, regional level, as well as international level. And I think there is greater recognition of the fact that uh, that water is a major uh, water security is a major concern for a large section of the population across the world. Uh, there are technological interventions that are also being looked at as a solution to the water problem that we are facing. So there is, of course, that. Uh, there is also economic uh, uh, um, economic tools that are being suggested as well. So, of course, uh, some people would not agree with the fact that water should be priced. But is that probably the only way to make sure that, um, uh, you know, water can be saved for the future generations as well? Uh, so, yes, uh, whether water is uh, a human right or can it be prized? Uh, all these questions are also being asked. Privatization of water is also happening, which may be extremely um, controversial and may actually lead to more inequity between communities and their access to water. And we already have seen conflicts erupting in many parts of the world, like in Bolivia, where uh, privatization of water led to large scale protests, uh, protests and violence among communities especially those who were uh, were uh, uh, could i mean those who were deprived of the access to water so you know so it is not just uh, interstate tensions uh, there are already tensions between communities over water we have seen that in india as well where uh, uh, river water sharing between tamil nadu and karnataka on uh, kaveri uh, has led to violent uh, protests um, and also, you know, violence in terms of burning buses and all of that in the past, uh, and similar such uh, similar such uh, disputes are all, all, all also being seen in other parts of the world. And we are seeing right now even interstate tensions uh, along the Nile River between Ethiopia and Egypt, for instance. So, in that sense, there are technological interventions. There are uh, there is the issue of inequity that we have to address. Uh, social issues concerning uh, water access and water availability and even water pricing that has to be addressed on a larger scale. Um, and uh, like I mentioned, uh, we also have to think of, uh, uh, we also have to think of ways in which policy measures can be adopted at the national level, in particular, uh, in various countries where water, uh, where water can be conserved, right? So we have seen a situation in, in Cape Town where uh, it was almost the day zero. In Chennai also we saw that situation. So in that sense, water is going to be a major part of policy making. And in fact, this is an issue on which I feel people are definitely going to vote, if not climate change in the future, uh, in the next five or 10 years. So yes, I think this is going to be uh, this is going to be a major um, uh, uh, issue of concern for not just the policymakers, but for people and all stakeholders uh, who uh, who need to come together to find solutions to water security problems. So I began this episode by saying how there hadn't been much research in the past in the field of international relations on environmentalism. And I think 
throughout this episode, you have convinced me that there has to be more research done to avoid situations where uh, conflicts may arise. Thank you very much, Dr. Jairam, for agreeing to be our guest today, and we wish you luck into your future research. Yeah, thank you so much, Ranak. I really enjoyed the conversation, and I hope uh, I hope to have more such discussions with you and your team uh, in the future as well. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Rewind, a podcast by Resolve. To learn more about us and how you can get involved, please visit our website at resolve.earth. You can also follow us on social media. We are active on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at resolve underscore earth. That's resolve spelled R-I-Z-O-L-V-E underscore earth. You'll find all the links mentioned here on the show notes below. Thanks again and see you next time.